way forward, week six. Again, we're just going after this week after week. Next week, Pastor Ruth is going to bring you a great word on Romans 7. Uh, today, I have the opportunity to, to bring you a message on Romans 6 titled, The Sin Question. The Sin Question. Comes to us in Romans the sin question. Now, I will tell you as way of illustration to begin that I'm, I was a little kid with a lot of questions. My questions led me to a lot of answers because I was a pretty self-confident little guy. And even from the time I was four and five, I had this desire to be a leader. Now we had this problem. We had a problem at the playground of the, the school at which I attended. It was a problem with ants. Everybody could see there was a problem. Like us kids, at least, you know, the, kid, the, play, the ants were all around the playground. Well, one, one little kid even got ants on them, you know, up their pants and down their sleeves. And we had to take matters into our own hand because the powers that be in the school were ignoring said problem. Well, I helped organize a solution. All right, we gathered on the playground. And again, we were three, four, and five years old. We were a motley little crew. Billy, you're bringing the newspaper. Sally, you're going to bring kindling. I've seen my dad do this. Uh, Joe, you're bringing the gas. That's a tall one, but I trust you, Joe. And I'm going to be in charge of matches. Now, the morning of the big, the big shindig happened, and I got the matches out of the house, and I showed up. I, I snuck them, because I knew even when you come up with solutions to the questions you face, a lot of us, if we're honest, we know kind of to, to be sneaky. So I snuck my matches out of the house at four and a half years old uh, in, a, in a little case. I got out to the playground and I looked around and I was just ready. I was ready. You know, this is like a motto. This was, I don't know, what, 40 years ago? You know, we didn't have these back then. But I got my matches and I'm looking for Joe with the gas. You might find this surprising. His parents did not allow him to bring a gas can <laughs> to preschool. Nobody showed up with anything except for me, red-handed with the, with the matches, all right? Now, we went home, and, and when you disobey in that day and age, it meant there was a punishment coming because, as my dad said, we just can't go around blowing up anthills. Now, I didn't really understand, I didn't really understand why, but I did understand the spanking I got that, that ended, bad idea. Now, oftentimes, we see a problem. It gives rise to a question. And oftentimes, it leads us in pursuit of an ulterior solution to, to fixing the problem that we can easily identify. And as we turn this morning to Romans 6, as we open the text, as we look at all of Romans 6, there's, there's this thing about our actions stemming from our desires to figure out our identity. Because if I'm honest, even though I was a little boy, it was a new school. And if I'm honest, I wanted to fit in. And I think if we're honest, we can acknowledge that a mistaken identity always leads to problems with behavior. Mistaken identity. Who am I anyway? And, and when we don't know the answer to that question, a mistaken identity, it leads us down the wrong pursuits, the wrong behaviors. So as when we're in a pursuit of Christ, we go after the behaviors, we're sure if we can change our behavior that our identity will be forged. And in Romans 6, Paul says, it's not true. No, it is your identity which will set you free to, that your behavior will follow. And he's going to go after the Roman church and he comes at the church in Seattle in the same way that, that as we look at these questions, there's questions in Romans 6, 
Jesus wants to give us an answer. Because if you're like me, even right now, I'm like, man, why did I do that? Why did I say that thing to my kid? Why did I lose my, my temper at, at a child? Why did I act so selfish with my spouse? Why did, I, why did I look at that person this way in hatred or lust or judgment? I mean, anybody else in the room struggle with it? And why, did I, why do I do that? Why do I do that? Turn to your neighbor right now and just ask them the question. Say, why, why do I do that? Look at them. And, and then look at the same person and say, why do you do that? Because that's... <laughs> this question... Why do I do it? Mistaken identity leads to oftentimes problems with behavior. And in Romans 6, Paul answers the question of, well, why do we even pursue holiness then? Because if we're going to be covered up with God's grace, then, then what should we do? Verse 1, what should we say? Verse 15, shall we sin? Verse 21, what benefit did you reap from the things you're ashamed of? He's posing questions to people in the church to say, it's not the question that's the, it's the, 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 the issue for you. It's your lack of trust in your identity in Jesus Christ. Because when your identity is secure in Christ, you no longer will struggle with the same issues with behavior over and over and over again. We know that everyone in the room, we're aligned, not by our perfection, but by Christ. Everybody in the room, we know that we're sinners. We know it, right? We look into the world and we say, we see sin. How do we know? Halloween. There's little kids walking around, the cutest, most delightful kids walking around shoreline with sheets covered with fake blood and butcher knives. It's like, what's wrong with you? Like, right? And then we get home from trick-or-treating because we're not home. And we, we, let, we were one of those families. We put the bucket of candy with the nice sign. We made the sign. Only three pieces of candy. Guess what? Now, either mathematically, the perfect number of kids showed up at my house at Halloween, or we're sinners. There was an empty Halloween bucket. All right, I held it up to my kids. I'm like, just, it's proof. We're all broken, kids. They're like, no, you don't leave a bucket of candy and not expect kids to empty it. Like, we, like in the most superficial of ways, in the deepest of ways, Paul is going to challenge us in Romans 6 to remind ourselves that Christ's life brings answers to the questions that plague us in our behavior. Does our behavior matter? Paul's saying, I think we need to get this identity thing right first. And so he says that there's a freedom. It's not a freedom to sin. It's a freedom from sin, but it must be acknowledged. Because sin in the lives of many of us becomes a slave owner to us. It's not freedom. Ask anybody in the room that's fighting currently addiction that is a sponsor or a mentor or has experience in Celebrate Recovery or, or in the 12 Steps. Now, sin is not no freedom at all. It's the ultimate slavery. And so Paul wants to challenge us this morning. He wants to challenge two false narratives. I'm going to give you two false narratives, and we're still in the introduction here, because we're all here this morning looking for more freedom in Christ in our lives. And so this false narrative, number one, Paul wants to kind of challenge is, if you're not obeying, you're not saved. Paul's like, I'm going to just cut that off at the root, because you can be saved without obedience But, Paul says in Romans 6, you're wasting the gift that you've been given. You you can be saved and not obeying, but you're wasting the gift of freedom that Christ wants to offer you. That's a false narrative he wants to attack. The second false narrative he wants to attack is, is be good, really obey, 
and prove that you're saved. Paul's like, no, 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 no. You can conform outwardly with sinless behavior and miss all the internal peace that Jesus wants to give you. And so it's really not about behavior, says Paul. It's really not saying, like, well, who am I? Paul's saying, it's about who's am I. And for a church that can answer that question, who's am I? When we get that identity question right, all the downstream behavior questions won't be gone, let's be honest, but we'll have an answer to the questions that plague us. And so our big idea this morning is the faith that we long to live, one of obedience and peace, absent of slavery to sin, this faith that we long to live can be ours when we seize our identity as being free in Christ. And so Paul asks three questions. Your outline has three questions. The first question I'll ask you this morning that comes in Romans 6, I know it's not a question on the tip of our lips, but it comes to the text this morning, is why does baptism matter? Now, if you, if you are baptized, if you've already answered this question, stay with me because there's going to be some more practical applications. But as you look at verses 1 through 7, Paul answers this question, why does baptism matter? The answer is because, Paul says, we are urged to live a new life with a public declaration of new faith. I mean, that's just like the, real, you know, the Sunday school answer. He gives it to us here in verses 1 through 7. We're urged to live a new life because of Christ's grace. And in that way, a public declaration of a new faith will seal the deal. The early church knew if they would be baptized, remember, first 300 years, the, the, the Roman emperor was against the church. It all changed with Constantine. It's a different message on a different day. But in the early church, when you were dipped in the water, you were making a public declaration, go ahead and take my life. Man, I've been, I've been dipped in the water, and any one of your neighbors could report you, you're part of the new church. Man, you are dangerous. Are you serious? Baptism it was insidious. But they didn't care. Because of the new faith that they were called to, this public declaration mattered so much to them. And so look at verses 1 through 7. Verses 1 through 7 of Romans 6. What should we say then? Ruth just read it for you. I'm not going to read it all. Let's look at verse 4. Verse 4. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Verse 4. We may live a new life. Now, if you're like me, you're like, okay, but he's probably speaking to a bunch of people that aren't baptized, right? Not so. The church in Rome, though it's about 13 different house churches, really divided by Jew and Gentile, really divided by slave and free, they were pretty much aligned that their public declaration yielded a public baptism. It was just a, it was a known deal. Because baptism doesn't make you saved. Baptism is a declaration to your friends and your family and to the world around, I have a savior. So we're not... We don't, here at Bethany especially, we, we don't believe that salvation happens upon the dipping of the water. No, it's an ordinance of a declaration. This is what the Spirit is already doing in me. And, and something mysterious happens. It's not magic, but it is mystery. That the indwelling Spirit comes and lives in us for the rest of our days. And so we don't teach that, oh, you have to be baptized in order to be saved. How do we know? Go to Luke. Go to the thieves on the cross. It's Luke 23. Thief one, hanging next to him. Aren't you the Messiah? Remember this? Luke 23. Save yourself. Criminal number two. Dude, are you insane? Like, we're dying up here because we're guilty from our behavior. But this man is honestly not guilty. And then he looks at Jesus. And he says, Jesus, 
basically, essentially, Luke 23, I want a faith like that. And then Jesus says, yeah, climb down from the cross and get baptized, right? Isn't that in the Bible? No. What does he say? He looks at him. He says, you have faith, man. This day with me in paradise. So when you start getting into the weeds of theology and someone wants to come at you about like something that has to be about this or that with some nuance, because people will have that argument about baptism, it's fine, but you'll know because you can cherry pick pieces of the, of the scripture to say that only the baptized are really saved. There are people in this room this morning that are yet to be baptized because they're waiting. Many people, we, we, we wait for the perfect time to be baptized. And we really miss the point because nobody lowers themselves down into the water. When you're baptized, it's a declaration. Man, take my life, Jesus. Like, go ahead and dunk me in the hot tub or in Puget Sound or wherever. Take my life and the spirit will promise to live inside of you. This is a problem for the modern church because when we put ourselves in the gospel story, it's like, are you Peter or are you James? Like, we're all the all-stars. You're like, Ah, you're John. Like, you're the, no. I got news for you. You're the paralytic. And you know what our kids are learning about today? They're learning about the paralytic. And as Jordan shared that as we prayed over our kids learning about the gospel story this morning, I'm like, ha, that's me. I'm not Peter. I'm not James or John. I'm not Judas. But I'm utterly paralyzed for the depth of the faith of Jesus I so long for. Because remember the paralytic? He's on a mat, and his buddies have to carry him to Christ. You're being carried into a trajectory of growth and peace and love. And so if it's real for you, declare it. That's what baptism is about. We claim the power that awaits us in the Gulf War in in the Middle East as, as men were coming and getting ready to head to the front lines, and there was rumors about weapons of mass destruction and all this what was reported is that there was a massive move of faith because there's nothing like the battlefront to make you desperate for a new way of life, right? I think sometimes it's our comfort that comes at our greatest cost of intimacy with Jesus. We don't, for a lot of us, we don't know that we're in a battle anymore. We're not sure that somebody's trying to steal my peace or my joy or steal peace in my home or destroy my Christian marriage or take the faith of my growing kids. And it angers me a great deal because when we forget that we're in, I know we do too much with like onward Christian soldier. No, I don't want to do that. But I do want to acknowledge there's something that's trying to steal my peace. There's something that's trying to steal my joy. There's something in me that, given my own pre-inclinations, will choose sin over godliness. So Jesus, take my life. It's a battle. It's a war. It's a long journey. Fill in your metaphor and know that it's difficult, but only with the gift of the Spirit do you have what it takes. So these men in the first Gulf War, they're facing war and fear, and then they hear the gospel, and men are coming to Jesus in record numbers. And the chaplains, they're in the Middle East. They don't have lakes, rivers, nothing. They have sand and caskets. And the chaplains fill the caskets with water, and they're baptizing these young men, these boys, into these coffins, into new life of the Spirit. Do you love that image? Okay, that's our lives. 
All right, and if you don't think that there's a war for your heart, if you don't think there's somebody trying to tell you to climb into that coffin, put your marriage in the coffin, put your peace in that coffin, because there's much too much to be anxious about. Put your joy in that coffin. Put your life in that coffin and just die a little bit. Man, the narrative of hopelessness is coming to us every day right now. In Jesus, we have new life. And when we're baptized, it's a declaration to the world around, I have a greater hope. So, so how? Well, simple in this one. The how is simple in this one because we have a baptism coming up. So for people are like, man, I, I've, that's me. I've been waiting. I, you know, I, I do trust Jesus. I love Jesus. Like someone said, I, I thought we only baptized little kids at Bethany North. Could we have, a, could we have an adult day? No. But we do need to be a church that's baptizing adults. Be wary of the church that stops baptizing people. And if we've all got it figured out, then I'll go somewhere else and preach to the sinners. Because guess who you've selected as your pastor? You didn't. You just showed up. Sorry, you were giving me. But like, I have a heart to preach to the coffins. Because that's my story. Without Jesus, man, I'm dead. So if you want to be baptized, it's not just for little kids anymore. November 18th. You can email, you can join. And for the others in the room, like, you know, I'm already baptized. Well, this is where we get to renew our covenant with Jesus in community, in baptism, I'm sorry, in communion. That's what we're going to do at the end of the service, communion. So when we take communion, we can take that mental image of, Jesus, I'm out of the coffin and into your new life because you died for me. And so may communion hurt a little bit. And may you rest a little bit with your deadness. And then may you seize the life of which we call to. And this is why church matters. Like as a church, we're meant to be a family. Like you don't baptize yourself. You don't serve communion to yourself. Yeah, just get it on Amazon. It's way simpler that way. Podcast, you can jog and get Jesus. Bonus, get your portable your communion thing. Like it's easier that way. Like you come to this table, someone serves you. Imperfect people serve you communion of the perfect love of Jesus. You don't serve yourself. And we need each other. Man, I got news for you. When you come down to this table, you're coming with sinners. There's a Democrat behind you and a Republican in front of you. Oh, like I don't know which you scares you more. But they're both coming. All right? I don't know what your issue is. But you come to the table imperfectly to receive the perfect love of Jesus. I don't know if you saw Golden Tate, former Seahawks receiver. We have a few Hawks fans in the room. Golden Tate was traded this week. Traded. He spent several years playing for the Detroit Lions after he left the Seattle Seahawks. Golden Tate was traded. His family lives in Detroit. I don't know Golden personally. And this isn't a bust in his shop. This is just pro sports. Now, he is traded. And he hits Twitter to be, like, you can read it yourself. It's, so long, Detroit. Hello, Philly. Man, let's go get a super. I mean, I'm like, really? That easy? Like, you, are, you, you have a life there? You've been, like, practicing? It's mid-season? And you're, like, on Twitter that moment? That's how the church is these days. Man, I've been traded from Bethany. I'm on to the Knicks, you know. Goodbye, Scott. Woohoo, Dustin. You know, like, man, we need each other. It's really hard to need each other if we're in and out of each other's lives. So I know I'm preaching to the choir, but this is why I was called, to help build a family, okay, an imperfect family. So be baptized, 
or keep coming and believing in this thing called church where we remember that without Jesus, it's a coffin. And with Jesus, it's new life. It matters. That was my story. Like, I just, I heard about all the death, all the, you know, you can't do this to be a Christian. You shouldn't say this. You, you know, don't smoke. Don't, like, I knew the rules. I didn't see the faith. So I was not interested until I saw people living out of this radical obedience that loved Jesus so much, it changed their life. And guess what? It changed my life, watching other people love Jesus. The scripture says, no one ever seen the Father except Jesus. Maybe in your world, nobody's seen Jesus but you. So if you're not on fire for Jesus, nobody's seeing him. And it's not a guilt trip. We're called to declare what we see. When I, as a young man, saw people living real faith, not rules, I'm like, give me that. Because I'm lonely and they have friendship. Because I'm anxious and they seem to know peace. Because I'm broken and they talk about wholeness. Yeah, Jesus, take my life. And when I was baptized, my senior, well, just after my senior college in the Spokane River, man, I came up out of that river and I cried and I cried and I cried and I cried because I was recipient of a freedom I had never been able to, to achieve on my own. And so may you declare Christ's life in your actions, in your church attendance, in your proclamation of baptism, in communion. Second question that comes we're going to have to go a little faster here, is why do we sin? Why do we sin? Paul answers this in in verses 8 through 14. I'll read in just a moment. The quick answer is why do we sin is because we need a new identity in Christ instead of just a gospel of no. We need a new identity in Christ instead of a gospel of no. You know, when we uh, try to, many mornings, we try to read scripture and pray with our kids before they go to school. Our after-school stuff is is craziness with sports and whatever. So even though we all don't feel great and sometimes it's rushed and it's whatever, we open the text, we'll read a little bit of scripture, we'll take prayer requests, we'll pray with kids. And as I sit with my kids in the morning, I do not say to them, don't swear today, don't take a cigarette on your way to school, don't drink out of that kid's bottle, we don't know where his mouth has been. Like I don't fill them with the rules. I show them the Father's love. I just, and then I'm like, and please, Jesus, take care of them today. Any parent will tell you it's scary times sending our kids off to school. We don't fill them with the rules. We try to give them a picture of the hope of Jesus. And so Paul points here in verses 8 through 14, why do we sin? Because it's about new identity versus just this gospel of no. Look at verses 8 through 13. Paul says in Romans 8, now if we died with Christ, we believe we'll also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. I'll stop there. It's super important. This word he says in in verse 11, count yourself. The Greek is this word logazamai. That's basically like where we get the derivative of logic. It's an accounting term. So when he says in verse 11, count yourself, he's literally telling the church in Rome, do the work, like count your blessings, write down how God has, has loved you, like literally take stock of the way in which that God's love is covering over your life, that the life of faith, this new identity you received, this is what it means, it's to count up, to reckon, and it's not just about behavior that'll get you there, it's this knowledge that you are dead without Christ, 
in him, with him, you have life. Remember who you are. Look at verse 13. How do we remember who we are? Verse 13, do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God. We have a contrast here. Don't offer yourself to any part of sin of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Now this sounds really more religious than Paul intends. The offer is a word peristano. It means to place at the disposal of one another. So when he says peristano yourself, offer yourself. Offer, do, do not offer yourself to sin because if you peristano, if you offer yourself to disobedience, to addiction, to online porn, to, 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 to brokenness in your relationships, to, to hatred, to, you know, you, you count it, count it up. And with those things that you're offering yourself to, it will equal death in your life. Paul says, no, do not do that, but offer yourself instead to Jesus and his righteousness. There was this mystical holy man in ancient Russia, Rasputin. And you know the story of Rasputin? Right, he's a maniac. Oh, don't, don't Wikipedia Rasputin. It'll give you nightmares. Because Rasputin's theology, as I come to understand it, was you can drive out sin with sin. The more you sin, the more you need grace. So let's, let's go for it. How does that work for Rasputin? Kind of like Dr. Phil used to say, how's that working out for you? He gets murdered because he, he says yes to yet another interaction with a young female and people out for his demise kill him in a horrible fashion. So when you offer yourselves up, like there, there's an accounting to pay. It's not... It's not God's judgment from you. It's just if you offer yourself as obedient to another slave master, you'll be enslaved. Paul says, don't do that. Don't do it. Don't don't offer yourself up and think that somehow it won't come to reckon in your life. No, instead, offer yourself up to Christ. Look at Galatians 5.1. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Rather, says Paul, present yourselves for holiness. Verse 14 of Romans 6. For sin shall no longer be your master because you're not under the law but under grace. What masters you, church? What masters you? What's mastering you right now in your life? Is it obedience to Christ or offering yourself up to something that's stealing the very peace that he longs to give you? God's not, not, God's not wishing you ill for your decisions, but there's a reckoning. When you offer yourselves up to places of brokenness, you will find yourself broken. And remember, a mistaken identity always leads to a problem with behavior. So how do we do it any different? This is the how number two. We, we only sin when we forget who we are. And so discover and curate new identity in Christ. It's not not doing bad stuff. That's the double negative way of faith that never works. No, prayer, silence, petition, claiming Jesus' victory in your life. Get in touch with your new identity. Until you know the Father's love for you in your heart, your faith will be stuck in your head. And so as we've been saying a few times this fall, there's a difference between information and motivation. May you discover the radical love God has for you. That's your identity. And all the downstream results in your behavior come first 
to that first step, discover your new identity. We have this thing we do every year at Bethany North where we collect new coats, and this started organically as the best programs do. Probably four years ago, we got a knock on the door at, at the junction, the former strip club that we remodeled, and we sublet out to one cup coffee in the church offices there, and four years ago, it was a cold snap. People were knocking on the door. They said, we're, we're just cold. Can you get us some coats? And the kind of community this is, if I can brag on you, is I came this next Sunday and I talked about, you know, we need to collect coats. And in those days, our services were at 9 and 11. And, and I walked out afterwards and, you know, went and stand by the door to try to say, and I'm like, what are those? Well, people had already gone to the store and there was already about 15 coats piled up. So you are a community that longs to be used to offer yourselves as a blessing for Christ. When we do this coat drive, it's a chance to be a blessing. New coats, please. Like, just give people something nice. Because if I could tell you the story, we did coat drive every year. And a couple years ago, this woman, I won't use her name, but she stopped me. She was part of our Bible study that Leif was doing at the time. She got her coat, and she, she stopped me as I was walking through the coffee shop. And she said, I got my coat. And I'm like, I know, yeah. And then she said these words, and it just was so convicting to me. Because for many of us, we can buy a, a coat at Costco or different places, and it doesn't hurt that much. But her gratitude, her, 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 the number of years it had been since she had worn something new had, had reached double digits. And she looked at me, and she said, don't I look beautiful? You do. You look beautiful. So when we're clothed with Christ... It's a remembrance that the beauty that we long for, the peace, the grace, the downstream results of different behavior come first remembering, Jesus, you made me. I'm beautiful in your eyes. Let me cling to that identity as I head into a world that I can declare your peace, your joy, your truth. The final question we're going to get to in our outline here is how do we live like that? How do we actually live free? How do we live free? And the quick answer in your outline here is just to obtain a new obedience formed as slaves of God, as slaves of God. In verses 15 through 23, I don't have enough time to really go into it, but uh, he talks about a, verse 19 being a slave of righteousness leading to holiness. And it reminds me of that 1 Peter 2 verse, that 1 Peter 2, 16, to P- Peter says, live as free people. Do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. We don't love that word in our modern context for good reason about slaves, but the actual Greek here is a word duloo, means to be pledged, to be devoted, to be fully available. And so when Paul says, be a slave to God, be a slave to righteousness, he's just saying, devote yourself again and again. This day, Jesus, your peace. This day, your hope. This day, your life and mine. And when you're available for the spirit of Christ, you get changed. And this is what Paul is saying. No, no, pay attention to what you're in, what's enslaving you. We know in this day and age, we don't want to be people just existing in shame and always feeling guilty because shame spirals us, but responsibility calls us to response. Jesus, what am I responsible to? Your gospel has saved me. So what am I responsible to? How do I live that way? I had this pastoral conversation recently that was like, boom, that went well, where we were like going back and forth on an issue of behavior and the man in which I was speaking with, he said, you know, I just, I don't feel like I want to do this thing. I, I shouldn't have to. And in a moment of divine inspiration from the Spirit, I said, maybe it's a question not of what do you want to do, 
But what is God calling you to? What are you responsible to? And that word responsibility really stuck with the person that I was speaking with, and he's committed to making some new changes. What are you responsible for? If you're a recipient of the gospel, how are you responsible to declare that and have your life formed? Read this week Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. I'm not even going to put it up in front of you, but read what Paul says to the church in Ephesus. You've been saved by grace, not by works, in order to live out of this new freedom, to love God and love others. And so he says in Ephesians, he says in Romans 6, how do, we, how do we live free? Let's look at verse 23. I don't want to be a slave anymore. Look at verse 23. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you break these apart, the wages of sin, wages something you've endowed yourself to, something that you've worked hard, something you've been made available. There's quite a contrast in section A and section B. The wages of sin, we would be in the coffin still, but the gift of God is life in Christ and that word life in the Greek is the zoe it's the life that's really life the joy that's really joy better than Seahawks winning streak better than Sounders I know better than the Sounders against Portland that's the life that's really life Cliff he wants to live it in you the wages I don't want to be enslaved anymore I'm tired of the casket life the gift of God is freedom Lord Jesus, allow me to live a life like that, a faith like that, declaring to the world that I'm imperfect, but you are perfect. We've been claiming this like, man, I'm a sinner too. And God's like, yeah, and as you receive the gift of freedom and joy and peace, the world will look at you and say, that person lives different. So it's a free gift, but may you receive and live a life Not a different behavior, but of new identity. A new identity. I lay down with my kids. We pray every night. I also half the time take a nap on one of their beds. That's a different story. My wife is not loving that behavior. That's a behavior that's got to change. But during the prayers, man, I had a rough day. Lost my stuff on my kids. Man, he's a pastor. You know, sometimes I'm like, is anybody from the church here? You better knock it out. You know, sometimes I'm like, hey, Pastor Scott. Oh, hey, yeah, we were just praying. Yeah, we were just praying, I swear. Now, hang around me enough, you know. No, there's no perfect Christians. There's a perfect God. That had been a particularly rough day with a particular child I was just losing my stuff on. But that day, all day, I'm like, Jesus, your peace for this child Change me, Jesus, to be a better father for this child. God, I want to be an instrument, not in, not in a church in Shoreline, but in my home that these kids can see your, your life, Jesus, in mine, even though I'm a broken man. And I felt like I'd been failing all day long, and then we prayed that night, and my little girl, like, yeah, Jesus. A lot of our prayers is, yeah, Jesus, thank you for sure. You know, you know, like the routine prayer a kid does every time. There's no, not this night. Jesus, she said, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for how kind my daddy is. I'm not kind. That's the thing. Like, given my own, I'm selfish and proud. No, no. But that was a day that I was asking Jesus for more and more and more of his life in me. And so the life that's really life, the freedom that's really free, the joy that's really joy, it all comes from identity in Christ. So declare it with your life, church. And remember that the sin is really just a lot of times this behavior. Get back to the root of who Jesus says you are and claim his freedom in your life that the world would see his peace 
in you. Let me pray for that now. Lord God, thank you so much for this church and the work that you're doing in their lives. God, we are all aligned not by our perfection but by yours. We are all, God, probably a tad bit more inclined for the coffin than the little girl's prayers. And yet, God, you're calling us all to a radical obedience, a receptivity of your spirit in us. So, God, give us a hunger for you. Teach us a radical obedience where pieces of the old life are falling away and the new hope and the new peace is taking up residence in us. Lord God, may we declare your, your majesty, your majesty, God, in the living of our lives. What an audacious claim it is. And yet it is how you've made the model work, God. You in us, us to the world. Lord God, would you make us all men and women pursuing you, living out of this new identity. And all God's people said, amen.